Welcome to the Abundant Life Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Stephen Kiley. For more information about Abundant Life Church, please visit www.abundantlifechurch.org. I am so glad to be in this pulpit tonight. I feel like God has given me something to share, and I was no more convinced of that than uh, later this afternoon when I turned on uh, the news and heard what was happening. I said, I'm sure glad that I got this done before I turned that on. Because it just confirmed what God had given to me to speak to you tonight. And uh, I, once in a while, my wife brings home the Waukesha Freeman. And uh, she brought home a copy uh, the other morning. And it had a comic in it. And I thought, well, how appropriate is that? It had the comic of the guy, the old guy that's representing the previous year, walking out, and here comes in that little guy that's the new year, looks like a kid, and as they're passing by each other, he says, good luck. (laughs) And um, what did one guy say one time, just when you thought it couldn't get any worse? It does. (laughs) But you know what? What is calamity to one is insight to another. And tonight I really feel that God wants to speak to us. Um, Brother Russ already prayed, so you can be seated. I had, um, as I go through my Bible each year, um, this year, I, I always get to Jeremiah. And I'll be honest with you. I just say, boy, Lord, this is a, this is a rocky road to drive. And because there's... There's a lot of prophecy in it. It's, it's God speaking from the beginning to the end. God telling Jeremiah, tell the people this, tell the people that. And, and it shows the rebellion and all of the other things that are going on in Israel. And, but every now and then, uh, since it's the chronological Bible, it jumps out of the book and into another book. And when it jumped to Daniel, I said, oh, thank you, Jesus. I need a break. And uh, as I was reading Daniel, I came across something I've read, I don't know how many times, but I, I never saw it until about a day after I read it again. I was starting in the second chapter of Daniel, and then I went to the third chapter and the fourth. And I said, wow, I, I never realized that. And how many times have I read the book and it jumped out at me? So tonight, I'm going to be talking to you uh, a little bit from uh, Daniel. I'm going to start in the second chapter of Daniel with the second verse. I have to warn you, my voice may not make it as long as uh, it should. It's just uh, a little weak tonight. Daniel 2 and 2. In the second year of his reign... Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled, and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I've had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. Well, everybody's got 
an opinion on what a dream could mean if you tell them what the dream is. But a lot of people find it really difficult to tell you the interpretation of the dream when they don't know what the dream is. It's sort of like forecasting the weather. You know, everybody's got a view of what's going to happen tomorrow. But it doesn't always work that well for them, does it? Well, let me tell you something here. Nebuchadnezzar reigned from 605 B.C. to 562 B.C. Remember, in the Bible, we go down towards zero. So from 605 to 562, we're heading towards the... Uh, zero BC and into AD with the, uh, with the birth of Christ. So in other words, he reigned 43 years. Now there's some things I, I want to share with you about him. Uh, he was likely born around 630 BC. So that would have caused him to be about 25 years old when he started his reign. Now, these are some things that you might not know about Nebuchadnezzar. He began his life, in a, his, his reign, preceding his reign, he was in the military. He began as a, a military man, and matter of fact, uh, he became a military administrator uh, by the year 610. And when you first find mention of him, his father, and this is not necessarily in the scripture, this is in, in written history, mentions that he worked as a laborer in the restoration of the temple of Marduk. That was the chief god of the city of Babylon and the national god of Babylonia. Now after his father's death, which was on, they actually have the date, August 16th, 1605, Nebuchadnezzar returned back to Babylon and in a three-week period of time he ascended into his father's throne. Uh, this, this really denotes the character and the ability of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, it re reflects on his strong grip on the empire. So I guess what I'm trying to say is this man is not soft by any means. He's climbed the ladder to his position. Now, I, I don't know whether we got the slide on the kingdom of Babylon. I'd like you to see, if, I don't know whether we can show it or not, if it ever came through. But it was a massive kingdom. Um, it, it encompassed land from the Black Sea which is north of Russia, to the Persian Gulf, then to Egypt, actually to the other side of Egypt. He was without any doubt the most powerful man in the world. Now picture that. It encompassed a major part of Russia, Iraq, Iran, Arabia, Israel, all the way back to Egypt and to the other side of Egypt. That's a massive empire. Now, we find in the second year of his reign, he's only been reigning two years now, God sends him a dream. Matter of fact, you're going to find when you read that, 
uh, in Scripture about Nebuchadnezzar, God refers to Nebuchadnezzar as a servant. You ever wonder why God would call Nebuchadnezzar his servant? Because God uses people that don't necessarily follow him for his purposes. God uses the heathen for his purposes. So in a sense, even though they might deny his existence, God may be using them for something that he is doing. Well, in Nebuchadnezzar II, he's actually called Nebuchadnezzar II, if you go back and look uh, into history. With that, with much responsibility comes much anxiety. Now, we read that Nebuchadnezzar could not remember the dream, yet it was so troubling and overwhelming that he lost sleep over it. And matter of fact, he makes a decision that unless the wise men and the astrologers don't tell him the dream, because he can't, he's so troubled by it, unless they tell him the dream, they're going to take, he's going to take their life. Now, we're not talking about one or two men. We're talking about a large group of individuals, of which were Daniel, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as well. Let's go on to read. In that dream, though, what's important about that dream is it shows what's going to be happening in the future that dream is going to reveal the rise and fall of empires from Nebuchadnezzar's all the way to Christ. From that point in history, all the way back to the kingdom of God, it was all going to be portrayed in this dream. So again, I say to you, God used Nebuchadnezzar as a servant to reveal things that were going to happen throughout the remainder of history. Not just the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, but through the Grecian Empire, the Persian Empire, the Roman Empire, the renewed Roman Empire. Okay, let's go back and read verse 31. Daniel's describing to Nebuchadnezzar what he saw. In, in his interpreting to Nebuchadnezzar the dream. Your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold. That's Babylon. Its chest and arms, silver. That's Persia. Its belly and thighs of bronze, that's going to be the Grecian Empire. Its legs were of iron, that's going to be the Roman Empire. And, and its feet partly of iron and clay, baked clay. Now we call that the revived, revived Roman Empire. While you were watching, a rock was cut out. but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Now we're talking about the kingdom of God. And who do you think is the rock? 
That's Christ Jesus. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. Again, I tell you, God is allowing Nebuchadnezzar of a, of a, a view into the world's future. But what strikes me as strange is all that he seems to be able to focus on is his role as the head in the image. Because God certainly tells him that he's a man of authority and importance. There's no kingdom like his kingdom. But he misses the message of the dream and fails to prepare for what is yet to be fulfilled. Now, let me ask you a question. Isn't that the way of all men most generally? You've heard the same, you can't see the forest because of the trees. We're going to continue to read. This was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands, he has placed all mankind and the beast of the field and the birds in the sky. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. And it seems that that's when Nebuchadnezzar stops listening. Because he sees the, his importance his significance, his power. Verse 39, after you, another kingdom will arise inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. And finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom, yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not, not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. We could actually really look at that in relationship to the United States. Very strong. But it's got clay and iron. And it's very brittle. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. I'm in verse 44. Nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever, ever, the kingdom of God. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king that will what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. 
Now here we are. We've been preceding our generation. We've watched the fall of Babylon. We saw, we watched, and I'm talking through history, the fall of Persia, the fall of Greece, the fall of Rome, and now we're seeing a revived Roman Empire, but it's broken and brittle, even though it has iron in it. But again, I go back and I focus again on Nebuchadnezzar. He does not concentrate on the rest of the image. All he sees is the head over the body, which he is. I was watching a home video the other day. Um, I forget what they call the movie, the home videos. You ever watch that? It? It's just comical. And in one of those little home videos, uh, a girl, has, it's her birthday, and she comes outside and her parents have got her this really sharp electric car. You may have seen this. It's parked right next to their car. Like, this is great. You got your own car next to our car. And she walks out and a balloon gets loose. She forgets all about the car and she's all excited about the balloon. Now the parents are standing there after all the money and time they've invested and bringing this gift to their child, and she's more interested in a 39-cent balloon than she is in what the parents are trying to give her. And I think that's so true of the church. God has given us a gift. He's given us a book that tells the end from the beginning. But many times we as Christians get so enthralled by the minute things that we lose focus of the main thing. Now notice how Nebuchadnezzar responds to the words of Daniel in verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. But what struck out, stuck out to me when I was reading is not just this chapter, but what stuck out to me was the next chapter. Because in the next chapter, what does Nebuchadnezzar do? He builds an image just like the one he saw. He's going to build an image that's all gold, not silver and, and iron and clay, but his image is going to be all gold, and it's going to be him, represent him in his authority and his power. Now, you, you talk about missing the message. 
He's going to cause everyone, all of his, his magistrates, all of those that rule under him to come and bow down and worship the image. It's quite possibly very much like the image that he had in the dream. I would, I would dare say it looks almost exactly like the image, but he's changed it. He's changed the image that God showed him into the, in his dream into another image. And this image is just going to be goal. <clears throat> Daniel 3, verse 3. King Nebuchadnezzar ordered a gold statue to be built 90 feet. I'm, I'm reading from, I think it's the Berean. So it'll actually give you the dimensions. Oh, it is right there. NIV does it too. King Nebuchadnezzar ordered a gold statue to be built 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. He had it set up on Dura Valley near the city of Babylon, and he commanded his governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, and his other officials to come from everywhere in his kingdom to the dedication of the statue. So all of them came and stood in front of it. Then an official stood up and announced, people of every nation and race, now listen to the king's command. Trumpets, flutes, harps, and all other kinds of musical instruments will soon start playing. When you hear the music, you must bow down and worship the statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Anyone who refuses will be at once thrown into a flaming furnace. I believe that Nebuchadnezzar saw himself in the statue. Again, I say, remember, he was that of gold. Remember what Daniel told him. The Lord had spoke to Daniel and said, he's like the king of kings, of all, king of all the nations of the earth. He is so inflated by what he's been told by Daniel that he forgets the total message of the dream. He wanted to be noticed. He wanted the world to recognize his power. He wanted the world to recognize his ability. He failed to realize that God had placed him in the position that he occupied. God is the one that raises up. God is the one that takes down. And that God could, he didn't realize that God could take him out of that position as quickly as he placed him in it. <clears throat> Again, I say, isn't that part of our human condition? <clears throat> How many of you have heard the terminology or the word humanism? Everybody? Do you know that's, I call it a religion, it's the religion of humanism? I want to go back and I want to look in, at the definition of humanism in the Oxford Languages Dictionary. Oxford Languages Dictionary. Not a a Christian dictionary. It's Oxford. <clears throat> of course, it's a noun. It's an outlook or system of thought attaching prime importance to human rather than divine or supernatural matters. Let me read it again because you hear it all the time, the doctrine of humanism. It's a system of thought attaching prime importance to human 
rather than divine or supernatural matters. Humanist beliefs stress the potential value and goodness of human beings, emphasize common human needs, and seek solely rational ways of solving human problems. You don't find God in that at all. It's all about man is his own God. And in a sense, God gave man the word. He showed him his will. He showed him his place. He was, matter of fact, God gave man authority over the earth. But man, like Nebuchadnezzar, decided to make that into his own image, their own image and likeness. Humanism is like the statue of Nebuchadnezzar. In our day, just like in Nebuchadnezzar's day, everyone is to bow down and worship the doctrine of humanism. In other words, it's man's accomplishments, it's man's ability, it's man's authority, it's man's solutions. And if you don't worship that image, you are shamed. History does repeat itself. I want to tell you, friend, as humans, we're part of the picture. And as the church, we're a part of the picture, but we are not the center of focus. God is at the center of what is happening and of what is to come. I want to emphasize that. We are not the focus. It was a rock hewn without hands that toppled the nations of the world. We are not the main attraction. We're working in conjunction with God, but we are not the focus. I was thinking about how God used Nebuchadnezzar, and then I thought about another man that I hate almost as much as Nebuchadnezzar, probably more so, and his name is Hitler. He was warped in his way of thinking. He sought the annihilation not only of the Jews, but anyone that stood before him. He was insane with arrogance and pride. He was going to create a somewhat divine race. But do you know that God used Hitler to fulfill prophecy? What did Hitler do? He persecuted the Jews so much that many fled from Europe and returned back to Palestine. Because of the oppression and what was going on in Europe, many fled in ships and boats and returned back to Israel. God prophesied that that would happen. He used that terrible situation to drive his people back to Israel, and in 1948, they became a nation. When was Hitler killing all the Jews? Early 40s. But in a few years after that, we find a Jewish nation that God restored through the actions of an evil man. Just as God uses Nebuchadnezzar and just as God uses Hitler, God can use the evil situations of life to carry forth his word 
In King Nebuchadnezzar's case, his arrogance is about to bring him to a very humbling experience. I think of the scripture, beware when you think you stand, lest you fall. Nebuchadnezzar feels that he's so important and so wise that nothing can affect him. His decisions are based solely on his arrogance. But the experience that God is going to send into Nebuchadnezzar's life is unlike any experience that he's given to any other man in history. Never in scripture nor in history have I ever heard of what, how God humbled this man happening to another man. In Daniel, the fourth chapter, remember the second chapter, is the dream of the image. The third chapter is Nebuchadnezzar's exalting of himself. The fourth chapter is the humbling of Nebuchadnezzar. <clears throat> this dream in Daniel 4 is a warning. God always warns people before he does something to them. He always gives them a chance to repent and to change. And if a person does not repent of his pride or arrogance or rebellion, God will humble him and bring him down. Daniel 4, verse 8. This is the dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw. Now, Belshazzar, tell me the interpretation because none of the wise men of my kingdom can interpret it for me. But you are able because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Now, Belshazzar is Daniel. This is the interpretational king, and this is the decree that the Most High has issued against my Lord the King. You will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling will be with the beasts of the field. You will feed on grass like an ox, and be drenched with the dew of heaven. And seven times shall pass you by, until you acknowledge that the Most High rules over the kingdom of mankind and gives it to whom he wishes. As for the command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots, I'm in verse 26. Your kingdom will be restored to you as soon as you acknowledge that heaven rules. <laughs> that heaven rules. Not earth rules. Not politicians rule. But heaven rules. Therefore, may my advice be pleasing to you, king. Break away from your sins by doing what is right and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. Perhaps there will be an extension of your prosperity. Again, I point out to you, God is allowing the king this opportunity to escape a most horrifying seven-year experience. Repent of your sins and change your ways, and perhaps God will have mercy on you. Unfortunately, this does not happen in Nebuchadnezzar's case. You know how a man gets drunk and he just doesn't make sense? He's not rational. He makes bad decisions. That can happen to people that are drunk with pride. They become irrational. 
they don't listen to common sense. And he was drunk with power. And his, and his pride brought, blocked out the cries of warning that God was sending. He was intent on following his own destructive behavior. I'm going to share a couple things tonight with you. Now, I've, I've told you about a monkey trap. In Africa years ago, they found a very simple way to trap monkeys. Now, I think most of you, you're all older in here. Remember the days when the milkman brought the glass jars? Or they were in the store. If you're really old, you remember when the milkman, like Guernsey, brought the milk to your door and they put it in a little box and it was glass. Remember how the edge, the top was flanged and the neck was narrow and the bottom was wide? Now picture that type of a jug. Now what the hunter would do, all he needed was one banana. He'd tie a rope to the narrow part of the jug. Now remember, it's glass. You can see through it. He would slide the banana through the opening into the jar and he would place it in a place of visibility where a monkey might find it and be tempted by the banana. Now, there's nothing wrong with bananas. I bet you many of you had one this morning. They're good. They got potassium, they tell me. So the monkey comes by, he sees the banana, his mouth starts to water, and he says, I've got to have the banana. Now, he can get his hand through the opening, barely squeeze his hand through that narrow part of the jar. But when he grabs the banana, he makes a fist, and when he tries to pull it out, his hand out with the banana, his hand is too large. The hole is too small. It only allowed his hand in, but it won't allow his hand out. But the banana is something that the monkey wants so bad that he would rather go into captivity, become a captive, than to experience freedom. Now, to be free from the situation, all the monkey has to do is let go of the banana. All you have to do to be free and not in bondage is to let go of the thing that's causing your restriction. So the monkey determines he would rather be in bondage than freedom. Whose fault is that? Is it the hunter's fault? No, it's not the hunter's fault. The monkey can go free at any time he wants to. All he has to do is pull his hand out without the banana. They could be free, but they choose to live in bondage because they, let the, they refuse to let go of their sin. And in another sense, we want something that is not ours. Instead of let, letting go of that particular thing, we might grasp it with all of our might. Nobody's going to take that banana from me. Now, you can fill into the, in the blank for what the banana could represent. It could be an addiction. It could be hatred. 
jealousy. It could be envy. It could be hurt. It could be bitterness. But as long as you hold on to that thing, even though you could be free, you will remain a captive. And that, my friend, is not God's decision. It's your decision. The hunter can come at his own convenience and he can take you into captivity. That's exactly what's happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel, the fourth chapter, I'm reading from verse 29. Twelve months later, as he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, the king exclaimed, Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built by the might of my power, and as a royal residence, and not for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven. It is decreed to you, King Nebuchadnezzar, that the kingdom has departed from you. You will be driven away from mankind to live with the beasts of the field, and you will feed on grass like an ox. And seven times will pass you by until you acknowledge that the Most High rules over the kingdom of mankind and gives it to whom he wishes. At that moment, moment, the sentence against Nebuchadnezzar was filled. He was driven away from mankind. He ate grass like an ox, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. He looked more like an animal than he did a man. He acted like an animal and not like a man. He lost his sanity. God had turned him over to a reprobate mind, all because he would not acknowledge that what he had give, was given was given to him by God. It wasn't God's choice for Nebuchadnezzar to go through that. It was the king's choice. He'd been warned. He'd been told to correct his behavior. I happened to hear an interview, and I'm not going to tell you the person's name. You'll know who I'm talking about more than likely anyways. But this guy is a famous football player. Oh, a fewer horses, all your ears would have just went straight up in the air. Football. And I'll see if you can know, know who I'm talking about. He's a famous footballer. He has just about everything. He's got great skill. It can't be denied. He's got talent as well as wealth. Now, I saw an interview with this football player. And he declares why he cannot believe in God. Now, he was raised in a home, a godly home. But he has decided that he cannot believe in God, a God that would send people to hell. And that's how he said it. I cannot believe in a God that would send people to hell. Now, 
I want to tell you he's mistaken in his concept. For God doesn't want anybody to go to hell. God didn't create hell for human beings. Hell was created for the devil and his angels. However, many have chose to align with Satan and his angels and more than and not with God. Think about what I'm saying. There's two sides. It's right, wrong. There's holy and there's unholy. God says, be holy for I am holy. So if a person chooses sides and wants to fight on the side of the enemy and he's destroyed in battle, whose fault is it? If you choose to stand on the side of evil and of Satan and rebel against God and do the same thing Nebuchadnezzar has done, reject the warnings of God and the pleadings of God and the sacrifices of God for your freedom, you should not for one moment even entertain the thought that God is unloving. I don't know of another man that has, has given his life for the freedom of his enemy. While we were yet sinners, he died for us. Now you're going to tell me that that man, that God has no love? All that God wanted man to do was to acknowledge him and to identify with his love and his work on Calvary. Now, I'm going to close, and i got to ask you a question. Where do you stand today? I want to warn you, do not allow the blessings of life to become a God in your life. I go back and I look at Romans, the first chapter, and now I'm reading from the Berean Bible. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and darkened in their foolish hearts. All they, although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images of mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Again, I remind you of the definition of humanism. For an image of like unto mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the desires of their hearts to impurity for the dishonoring of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Let me read that again. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And they chose and they worshiped and served the creature, humanity, 
rather than the creator, divinity, who is forever worthy of praise. Amen. How do we stop from becoming vain? You know, that's, you know what? It's in our nature. Just like it's in the nature of a small child to tell a lie. No one ever gave them a book to read and a parent never sat down with them and said, all right, today we're going to learn how to lie. God gave us the ability to overcome our own nature. And one of the things that the wor- is the worst about your nature, our human nature, you know what it is? It's pride. You know what happens after pride takes over your life? The same thing that happened to Nebuchadnezzar. Pride always precedes a fall. Well, how do I overcome pride? How do I stomp it out and keep it locked up? It's through thankfulness. Every time, and you know this, every time you walk into prayer, you should do it with an attitude of thankfulness. And that's not just a good thought. That's scripture. Because in Psalm 104, it says this, Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. Enter into his courts with praise and with thanksgiving. His gates with thanksgiving and praise him, not yourself. Now let me close with this. A lot has happened today. But a lot has happened in the last year. It's almost like we're seeing things crumble before us. We'd almost got things put together a few years ago, but all of a sudden things are crumbling and we become angry inside at what we see. But let me tell you, God can use the wicked things of the earth to bring about his will and purposes for mankind. If he can use a Hitler to bring forth the prophecy of the renewal of his, the kingdom of Israel, he can use the wicked in our country to bring about his will for his kingdom. But that's where we have to just trust in him and be thankful for what we have and walk in faith. Do you know what happens to the righteous? You know what happens to their steps? They're ordered by the Lord. The steps of a righteous man are ordered by the Lord. Do you know where we get the ability to know where to place our feet? His word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. This, in a sense, is like unto Nebuchadnezzar's image in his dream. It shows the rise and fall of nations. It shows redemption. It shows that God has come and what he has in plan for the earth. It shows a place or a kingdom that never ends. Now we can look at just ourselves like Nebuchadnezzar did and just see the head. 
or we can take this book in its entirety and use it as a roadmap to get us to where we need to be. Lord Jesus, tonight, I am thankful for your word. How many times, Lord, have we just picked up this Bible and we've opened up the pages and you just spoke to us through the scriptures that we read. It's more than a book, it's a living thing, Lord. Sometimes we pick up this Bible and we read and it, it chastises us and it, it tastes bitter in our mouth. But I guess, Lord, once we eat the word, it tastes and goes down and fills us like honey. So I pray today, Lord, that you would take this book, you'd place it in our mind and in our heart, and help us always to be looking up to you. Not to... Thank you for listening to this Abundant Life Church podcast. We pray it has strengthened your relationship with God and will continue to be a light unto your pathway to heaven. If you have any questions or comments regarding this podcast, please telephone our ministerial team at 262-965-5177 or email us at info at abundantlifechurch.org. At